You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenge while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. So, once upon a time, when we could travel freely and, you know, people actually met in person and did fun, spontaneous things and made friends and talked to strangers, I, I traveled up to the Great White North, um, our neighbor Canada up there, my cousin, who's still up there, actually, sadly, um, uh, with considering what's going on in Canada right now. Um, but I met him at a Mises event, like of all the places and of all things, I was like, there's a Mises event going on at the school near you, Sam, like, let's go. And, um, you know, being young and again, spontaneous, uh, he came with me. And so what a, what a weird way for like 20 something year olds to spend a Saturday morning, (laughs) um, with probably not enough coffee considering the flight that I had to take the night before to get in there. But it was such a pleasant afternoon, obviously like, like minds and economics and just really like optimistic thinking, Um, you know, looking at the future with (laughs) a lot of caution um, because, you know, the Austrian school tends to be a lot more aware of what's going on and what can go wrong and what does go wrong. But, um, I think the important word and the feeling that I took away from that was just a lot of optimism. And I would say a lot of that had to do with um, our guest's presentation and meeting her and her colleagues. And without further ado, I want to introduce Joanna Cermak. Did I say that Perfect. That's wonderful. I did it. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, I remember that fondly. That was a great day of talks, wasn't it? It was so good. I was really upset that I didn't have more time to like spend and go hit the pub with you guys and keep chatting about <laughs> nerdy things like economics. <laughs> well, nerdy and vital. Nerdy and vital. I actually I wish agree. we would talk more about economics because as the last year has shown to us, economics is so important and yet nobody seems to have been paying attention to it exactly at the time when they should have right instead they've been focusing on a very pessimistic single-minded narrative and yeah that i think the the fact that they couldn't keep the economic straight they couldn't keep the incentives that would drive people straight or the cost benefit analysis that would have really helped straight Ah, that's paying off or rather paying off really negatively. But anyway, I'm, I'm butting in um, probably yeah. much too quickly, but uh, <laughs> I'm just again, so happy to be um, with you. Well, thanks yeah. for coming on. Yeah. We're definitely happy to have you and happy to actually um, happy to have another girl on with us because <laughs> we, just <laughs> oh, spent, yeah. we just spent the last month and March is a long month. Uh, we just spent the last month um, going through mansplain March with all male guests, including <laughs> our first April guest, who actually you you'll appreciate. I think when the episode comes out, but um, he's a holistic doctor that has been seeing and treating COVID patients this whole year. Um, and, and even now seeing people, you know, post 
post jab. Um, and so he's got a lot of controversial uh, opinions, but you know, all basically fact based and clinically based, you know, he's seeing the evidence right in front of his eyes. So that's really hard to, um, hard to diminish, but so yeah, happy to have another girl with us. <laughs> Let's talk about fun things like, um, you know, economics and uh, science fiction. And I guess maybe um, primarily just so people um, have a primer of like what you do and, you know, um, sort of like, I don't know, just context for why you might have some very interesting opinions uh, based maybe in comparison to um, some other colleagues of yours sure. in the university system. Oh, I think there are there are many places to start. I can start with why I am an eternal outcast and have always been open. <laughs> While I'm in many disciplines and have have made a let's say a, my, I've pr- processed if not progressed through many disciplines. I'll tell you how how I ended up being at that wonderful uh, Mises conference. Um, yeah. So many years ago, I went through engineering and I became an electrical engineer and have a master's degree in that. And um, what I did there was rather unusual as well, because it was really more semiconductor physics. And that's relevant, not only because we may end up touching a little bit on science fiction, but also because um, as somebody who rubbed shoulders with many physicists and did applied physics, I got to know a lot of the narratives that animate physics and the sciences, right? So one of the most important things that I ended up um, writing about in, in the in the piece that we may talk about a bit later today is the this um, conflict, the conflict of the dynamic narrative of emergence, spontaneous order, and essentially what we, what we could think of as the the, the larger um, um, Austrian economic embracing narrative of resourceship versus stasis, steady state, equilibrium, and conservation, right? And of course, that steady state, equilibrium, conservation narrative was hugely the one that we learned in physics, right? And that's that's really relevant to, uh, um, I think, uh, the continuing reigning eco-pessimism that also embraces the sort of narrative of stasis and in fact, degrowth, so kind of a, a, a negative growth, a retrenchment, um, instead of resourceship, almost kind of a devolution of, of, of any sort of human agency and any sort of uh, advancement of, um, of, our, of our capability, of our, of our potential, and um, even of, of our well-being. But anyway, so that's the first in a series of many asides I'll probably offer. But anyway, the engineering was, was something that was both fascinating, but also oh, such a poor fit, in a sense, to somebody who's a bit more of a philosopher and um, historian of ideas than really an engineer. So after that, I um, ended up getting a, a, another graduate degree this time. It was um, in something that allows me to be an academic librarian. And as an academic librarian, I worked in the US and then ended up working um, in, uh, in Canada, in the Toronto area. We call it the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, where while working, Um, With many faculty and students, I found my soulmate, um, another faculty. He is an economic geographer who also does um, uh, economic history and um, in addition to economic geography, a variety of other critiques of intellectual movements. So both of us really care about intellectual history and we really care about exposing the progress and sometimes regression of certain kinds of thought and schools of thought. 
So that was something that brought us together. And we both realized that we really cared about two um, overarching things. Number one, um, we're optimistic people, but not naively optimistic in a kind of, um, you know, the best of all possible world, worlds, Panglossian way. No, that's, that's not it. What, what we like to embrace is a data-driven optimism that has recently been embraced by many people, starting with, um, you know, the, the cautious optimist Bjorn Lomborg, uh, the Roslings, who have written a fantastic book, uh, Factfulness, published a couple of years ago. A number of other people, I mean, uh, just uh, actual names escape me, but if you look at the article, there's a list of five or six, if not mm -hmm. eight or ten, uh, people who have who have been giving the sort of data-based, cautious, optimistic perspectives that are based on the fact that there are fewer poor and starving people now than ever in human history. Yep that many ecosystems are healing spontaneously, that there is what Jesse Ozabel called rewilding. And this mm. rewilding dynamic happens uh, because people are moving away from marginal lands and they're making a lot of, uh, let's say, um, economically not so productive lands available to nature uh, because agriculture is so much more efficient, right? So it's this beautiful movement towards efficiency towards greater effectiveness, towards concentrating human impact in smaller and smaller spaces, even as population is growing, that's allowing the world to be cleaner, more prosperous, more efficient, better connected, right? So all these things, all these things are happening. So um, my wonderful soulmate, Pierre Dragochet, who is a, um, a professor at the same institution as, as I happen to be working, we both realize that we strongly believe in this and that is a minority opinion in most um, institutions of higher learning these days. Mm -hmm. Not only is it a minority opinion, it's almost, I won't say exactly persecuted, but I think it, it's definitely frowned upon. Another thing that this opinion implies um, and carries along with it is a belief that uh, population growth is not evil. So that alone makes us pariahs on campus because, of course, everybody else believes that uh, we, uh, as as a species, humanity has moved into so many ecological niches that um, uh, the growth of uh, of um, let's say uh, uh, what we do, essentially um, anthropogenic activities and and all sorts of anthropogenic creations, um, have has not only um, destroyed other ecosystems and habitats, but has essentially become like a blight or like cancer um, through through the universe. And, and we happen to believe actually quite quite the opposite, that even though there have been moments when uh, people didn't coexist very peacefully uh, with the environment, the net movement has always been towards a better use, a more, um, I think, more respectful, more creative use of the environment. And right now we're in a place where um, even though a few things could go better, overall, as, as a species, we're, we're doing very well and, and we're starting to find um, considerable think, places of balance, places of beauty, and again, um, having less and less pressure in many ecosystems. So that was another thing that, that we believed in. Oh, the third thing that we shared. <laughs> and that one was just, <laughs> I, I'm laughing myself because it was a clincher. How many people do you find who are absolute... Um, Mavericks in academia, believing all these things, so believing in 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 a positive view of humanity and progress in in Austrian economic ideas, and um, caring about Jane Jacobs. I at that point I was merely somebody who had read 
a number of her books and truly enjoyed her her um, unusual views. And um, she was somebody who embraced spontaneous order completely independently and outside of the Austrian tradition. Um, so um, her own views upon uh, role of humanity and the growth of urban centers and again, a human, um, let's say, um, human characteristics in the wider world were just so parallel, so congruent with Hayekian ideas that it was quite incredible to realize that she had never yet read Hayek, that um, wow. uh, it was it was actually he who was interested in some of her ideas at the end of her of his life. They never spoke, as far as I know. There was there was never any direct contact between them, and yet. Um, they seem to be listening to the same inner voice and they seem, they seem to be expressing the same ideas about the importance of emergence, about the importance of an order that is just so much greater than the sum of its parts, its parts, pardon me, and that emerges from unforced, voluntary and unscripted um, interactions between many people doing actually what they want, not because they're selfish and evil, but because doing what they want actually makes things easier for not just them, but everybody around them. So doing what they want, accomplishing their purpose, helps everybody else accomplish their purposes so much more efficiently without any need to coordinate, right? So the beauty, again, of Hayekian ideas was that they ran smack in the face of all the top-down theorizing that was, and still is, so incredibly popular, both in the <sighs> academia and through every level of government uh, and NGOs, right? Why do we have these NGOs? Because somebody, a technocrat, believes, mm -hmm. in fact, not just one, but armies upon armies of them, believe that they... Are better placed to solve the problems of person X in Central Africa than um, that person and their family. What hubris, right? What craziness? What what utter inability to see the world um, in in uh, let's say in the reality of what it has been manifesting uh, to us, you know, through through the centuries and again through the work of people like Jacobs or like Hayek. So again, this, these Jacobsian insights were so unusual. To, um, to see somewhere else and to find um, among my colleagues that, well, of course, we just gravitated towards each other. That was uh, oddly enough, actually a decade ago that we graduated, uh, that we uh, graduated to working together. First we met and then within weeks we were basically working together, Pierre and I, um, on these um, intertwining ideas, right? So um, optimism, um, data-driven, cautious optimism, um, resource ship type ideas uh, connected to, to Austrian economics and again uh, Jacobs and, and the ideas that she espoused um, in parallel to the Austrian school. Anyway, what a long-winded answer. You've got somebody who just won't shut up on this podcast. So <laughs> at some point, please tell me that's enough of an answer. So anyway, that's what we do. So Pierre and I write stuff. <laughs> yeah. Now, and um, it's good to have people like you who are clearly so passionate about things that are very important to people like us and anybody listening. Um, I'm, I'm literally like doing some amen hand signals over here. <laughs> Our listeners can't see me, but um, <laughs> I, I mean, mic drop like that's like and I love uh, sure maybe it um, feeds some of my confirmation bias, but I think it's, you know, 
in the face of basically everything working against, and, and when I say everything, I mean like the narratives, like counter narratives, even like um, alternative narratives that they supplant and put into the system. Like basically everything is working against people like us and our ideas, yet still, you know, it's always a little bit sad to see how few people are listening, but, you know, we have to, we have to remain optimistic and we know that the reach is getting farther and farther and our voices are getting louder and louder and more people are paying attention to this. And even if they kind of stumble into these ideas, we're all moving in a better, I think, direction and, and you and you and Pierre and anybody else like, you know, the like minds of the Mises Institute, for example, you guys are actually doing the homework and um, actually looking, doing the data crunching and um, basically bringing the good news to life in a way that we can rely upon. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it. Sorry, I just love that bringing the good news home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm fascinated with the concept of spontaneous order because I feel like human beings do that. We, we, we spontaneously get together for different reasons. It's been like that since the beginning of time. Governments, religions, you know, communities have spontaneously come together. And the, the idea that people still don't believe that is just baffling to me because that's what has always happened. <laughs> you know, but and created the law. <laughs> yeah. The law and, did not create civilized man. But, you know, you have a background in physics or a background in mechanical engineering physics is part of that. But um, everything in this world is spontaneously trying to make order, is trying to find a balance all the time. When we're talking about humans or whether we're talking about temperature or whether we're talking about osmosis, everything is, uh, even the elements themselves have to be a... The, the, the positive and negative charges have to balance each other out. That's how everything is. So it's just, there's always spontaneous order in everything in this world. And the fact that people think that there isn't, it just drives me nuts. <laughs> Especially scientists who should know this. Well, the interesting thing with science, though, is that... Um, okay, so uh, I did skip over something uh, in my very, very long introduction... Um, I'm also working on a PhD in um, history of uh, science, and uh, I'm cool. actually looking at um, Jacobs's ideas as the ideas of, a, of an um, extradisciplinary or transdisciplinary maverick. So what you've touched on is is absolutely crucial, um, because what what you've um, what you've got into essentially is the is the field that's been um, studied by uh, people um, like Thomas Kuhn. He's very well known um, for his foray into um, the development of science and what's called uh, you know normal science and then of course uh, the paradigm shift uh, uh, when normal science um, not so much fails but is, is supplanted or is supplemented by so much extra um, new information um, that the paradigm or the narrative in which scientists work has to be surveyed. And there's always a tension. So, so the, the thing that I notice a lot in my work is um, a desire by those who um, are um, the elites to guide us towards stasis and steady state and away from um, the dynamic um, uh, that's, that's always changing. And again, what, what you said is very true because there's always um, this uh, 
the dynamic, but trying to break through the static. And I think that really is the fundamental tension, um, not just in life, but in science. And it's true at every level. And people, uh, people like Hyde, people like Jacobs notice that. So one of the things that's actually maybe not um, extremely uh, well known about um, about Hayek's background, I mean, we tend to focus on his ideas in economics, but later on in life, once um, once he established some um, some of his ideas, including the critique of um, central planning and uh, the socialist uh, calculation of um, essentially of, of everything of, of value of um, of uh, output. Um, was that he he became really obsessed with the idea, why is it that um, even though we supply um, very well um, thought out and uh, data-driven explanations for things, people still end up going for narratives that are often simplistic, um, let's say black and white, um, what's the best way, dualistic. Uh, either dualistic binary. or, yes, exactly. Binary is exactly what I was thinking. And I'll tell you in a moment why I was thinking of, of dualism. There's actually a, a specific theory of cognitive development. There's peri stages of cognitive and moral development. It's not very often talked about because it goes back to the 50s and 60s. Uh, Perry was a researcher at Harvard School of Education. And what he noticed, so this is going to be an aside, but it'll come back to Hayek and you'll see in a moment how. So what, what Perry um, ended up observing after um, doing interviews with oh, hundreds upon hundreds of uh, what he then called freshmen at Harvard. So these would be your uh, incoming undergrad students. Um, and then, of course, uh, progressing with them through uh, many other many years of, of their stay at Harvard is, they, uh, many, is that many... Uh, people who uh, first started out their academic careers, came in with a certain mindset. So it was as if the development, the cognitive development of their brain and, and their abilities was kind of stopped at a stage. And that was the kind of dualistic stage. That's why I was thinking of dualism. And that's why, again, binary thinking is, is so absolutely important. So um, what, what ends up happening with Perry stages is that they progress um, from this this kind of binary dualism to what he called multiplicity, and that's the stage of relativism, and that's where it seems our culture is kind of stuck. It's stuck between this binary dualism and and relativism, and then there uh, which which he called multiplicity, and then there are further stages. But the point is that um, Hayek also recognized that that was happening. That there was that it was very easy for for people to buy into binary simplistic narratives. And it was extremely hard to move these narratives once they became entrenched. So for example, um, the ideas of, of Keynes uh, appealed to people because they seemed to be entrenched in and, and, and kind of surrounded by a narrative that 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 ran with let's say the spirit of the time and, and it it corresponded to a to a certain almost dualistic um, undercurrent that 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 he that he really uh, bought into, and so when we look at um, at Hayek's later obsession is how do you shift? And this was an intellectual obsession, so again a very productive kind of thing. How do you shift um, people, even very intelligent people, out of this uh, uh, let's say entrenched binary narrative and move them into something else? And Jane Jacobs 
had the same problem because when she started first working in the early 60s, um, so a little, a little bit after, um, let's say, Hayek's busy period, and then it was during the time when he had uh, retired more into, again, thinking about the history of ideas, thinking about um, bolstering the thinking uh, styles and capabilities of people so that they could help to break out of uh, that kind of thinking, Jacobs was fighting against the narrative of urban renewal and modernist um, architecture, because what she saw there was an incredible proclivity uh, by the architects and the entire community to almost single-mindedly, as if they were the sliding amoeba of mediocrity, to, to gravitate towards this, this idea of, oh, let's design communities top-down so that the way we think people should live will be the way that people will live, in fact, mm -hmm. um, and, and th that that will be somehow efficient for them. So never mind the fact that, first of all, every person should choose how they live. Every person should be able to, within their means, of course, to, to arrange uh, their living conditions and their living spaces uh, to suit their various uh, proposals. These modernist architects um, were... Um, raising or or where at least were behind uh, plans to raise entire blocks of cities so urban renewal was happening in many cities new york city where, where jacobs was at, was active in the 60s was only one of them um and many others were were of course affected by this so destroying entire blocks of functional uh, maybe not tidy but functional uh and uh, practical cities and replacing them with um let's say soviet style uh, ginormous uh, cages, basically uh, steel and concrete cages, mm -hmm. where people were constrained and forced to exist in a certain way that was um, visualized from on top by, um, I guess at this point we could we could call that uh, a planner or a technocrat who who saw their lives as as uh, um, not being worthwhile enough that they could have that that they could um, express their own agency. So that was uh, anyway. Um, there's so many other things I could I could uh, so many other directions in which I can go there. Uh, but the point is that these views were um, were so evident uh, in both Hayek and Jacobs, and they were so very much against the spirit of the time and uh, the main narrative of that time. And we find ourselves in the same place where uh, eco pessimism. Uh, that's the piece that I wrote about. Uh, is uh, is the narrative that essentially development is is bad. Um, progress, whether it be more efficient use of fossil fuels or better use of resources that we have and the development, any kind of growth is, is bad because what we should be doing is um, managing our impact on, on the earth so that we do as little harm as possible, but not in a spontaneous way so that people can satisfy both their needs and what it is um, that uh, they need to be doing, but in a way that, again, has been designed from the top down. So the reason why I mentioned both Hayek and Jacobs is that their life work was to show in very different ways, but still in, in, a, in a way of incredible converge, convergent evolution that um, these top-down um, design paradigms and ideas um, do not lead to the improvement of anything. In fact, they're usually an absolute and utter disaster uh, because what they result in is stasis. Um, 
Jacobs had a really uh, beautiful quote in one of her fantastic books. And I believe it was actually The Death and Life uh, of Great American Cities, her 1961 absolute bestseller. Um, she wrote a number of other books. And there is um, a, a book from um, uh, the early, uh, I think it was uh, published in the early 90s. For some reason, I'm thinking 91 or 92. But anyway, Systems of Survival, um, a beautiful philosophical exploration of um in fact, the tension between the two different ways in which people live. But the beautiful phrase I want to get at is what um, this this fantastic expression uh, of the dynamism and vitality of, of ideas, uh, where she said, um, um, a city is not a work of art. You know, it can't be, right? If you, yeah. if you build a city, if you construct a city according to a plan, um, it's taxidermy, and she used the word taxidermy, <laughs> right? So mm -hmm. it's, you, you, in fact, get to stasis, right? You get to you get to uh, the kind of thing by conservation, um, you basically get to death. Anyway, I could go on about that, but um, I would like to to uh, maybe pause for a second and see what ideas you'd like me to explore out of either those or something out of the article. Um, my quick reaction to sort of her. And your thoughts and your or you're expressing her thoughts and ideas on um you know modernization and cities and architecture, especially like being sort of one of the avenues to do so. Definitely getting some fountainhead vibes. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> um actually for listeners and for Joanna, just you might appreciate this. My cat's name is Howard. He Ooh. is a fluffy ginger cat that does whatever the hell he wants. And I know, I knew from the moment I cat. first saw him, oh yeah, I knew from the first moment I saw him that I wanted to name this ginger cat Howard for Howard Rourke. And, um, you know, most people who I mention to them that like his name's Howard, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But basically, as soon as I get into like a libertarian circle, I'm like, this is Howard Rourke. And they're like, oh, <laughs> but, um, no, it totally fits. And I think, um, probably sounds probably about right like timing wise um but i guess i want to let's turn to something that like i think um you touched on before this and and it's you know basically the whole backbone of this article that you just more recently put out but um so that pessimism that seems to be pervasive at you know your university environment but also you know, it's just everywhere. Um, and I think it, it even applies to COVID like this past year, like I've said before, people were allergic to good news. Yeah. Like there was nothing good. Like it was, an, it was doomsday from the get go. And, um, even still like, but what's, what I find really aggravating is that for example, you know, people might be questioning, um, the data that's being rolled out now, reporting and recording any adverse reactions or adverse events. Um, and so all of a sudden, like Team Doom is trying to put the put the doomsday, you know, prescription on those of us that might just be asking questions as we were asking questions all of last year. And, you know, they were the ones that basically said that we were trying to kill grandma. And now that they're actually killing grandma, or I should say still killing grandma, but just in a different way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to not get pessimi pessimistic for our own reasons. 
You know, it, 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 I mean, I think it's one thing, I think, you know, Jesse and I have talked about this, um, with other guests and just even with us that like, and I think it's specifically applicable to this past year in particular, but like those who do kind of believe in maybe some degree of higher power or some higher order or can understand and whether they see it like in a data driven way, like you guys do, or just, I don't know, like have the faith to see and witness it with their own eyes. You know, if they believe that there is this higher power, there's this higher calling and like, we're all here to do something better. You know, those are the people that have gotten through this a lot better than others and are a little bit more immune to that type of pessimism but what I do find hard is for us to not get, you know, blackpilled <laughs> and I'm thinking mm-hmm. like because of these severely like what's the word like chronic pessimists just always telling us that we're circulating circulating the drain it's hard to um stay on top of <laughs> just um emotions that are <laughs> like in hardwiring on us that I think you can talk about like, because I, I think there's a lot of psychology there. Um, just the hardwiring in us that makes it, you know, really hard to just be positive. Mm-hmm. You, you have mentioned so many things that, uh, that we could, we could definitely um, start talking about. One, one big thing though, that um, you mentioned um, partly because of um, let's say the self-reinforcing mechanism in um in the pessimist narrative but also the kind of self-reinforcing self-reinforcing mechanism in the media and um, is again the feedback loop right so both uh, jacobs and to some extent Hayek, but especially jacobs was really big on noticing feedback loops and and uh, feedback mechanisms and they're a huge thing um again in in uh, both in describing dynamic systems i in scientific terms, but also um, in noticing them in, in behavioral uh, terms, right? So feedback loops and feedback mechanisms apply beautifully um, in in many areas um, of uh, the sciences and applied sciences that venture bravely beyond steady state and equilibrium thinking and actually think about dynamic interaction. So you're absolutely right that that's that's abs- that that's key. Um, I think when it comes to pessimism, and I laid this out in the article um, with respect to eco-pessimism, but I think the same analysis could be applied to COVID pessimism. And by the way, you're right. News, especially in the US, is more negative about COVID uh, reporting and COVID outcomes than almost anywhere else in the world. I would say Canada is just about as bad as the US because I look at the news constantly for professional reasons. Uh, Just about all um, are negative. And also the other thing is once again, as part of that feedback loop to keep the negative coming and to keep people in, in, in that uh, Perry's, um, Perry's stages um, uh, dualistic mode of all, always thinking of only two possible outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Us and, and, and the unspeakable horror. Um, it, it, it really can be, so uh, the analysis I had, had can definitely be applied to, to that, right? So we've got the feedback mechanism and the fact that um, uh, we, have, uh, we have this uh, dualistic and very unrefined kind of thinking. So there are, uh, w- w- what happens there is uh, uh, with, with respect to the kind of uh, dualistic thinking, um, we have a kind of 
negativity effect and a very strong effect of the precautionary principle. So with precautionary principle, um, instead of thinking um, about all the possibilities that are still unknown, because precautionary principle was first actually applied uh, back in the 70s quite widely and in, in the 80s, uh, especially in Europe to um, evaluate um, a lot of ecological decisions, what, what you're thinking about uh, there is you're, you're trying to assess not just risk and benefits equally, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to prevent negative outcomes, uh, very often stopping any sort of uh, dynamic, spontaneous, or emergent solutions, right? So I see a lot of precautionary principle type reasoning um, with, uh, uh, with the pessimist narrative that we're seeing. Um, and there are other psychological effects that are reinforcing that as well in that kind of feedback loop mechanism. So what we're seeing is, is a lot of negativity uh, and negativity effects. So negativity effect and negativity dominance um, are a certain kind of um, evolutionary predisposition in us. And this is something that's been uh, noted since uh, the 80s and 90s. Evolutionary psychologists have been studying this. Um, obviously, as a fairly vulnerable species that is, is not... Um, an outright predator, but um, has some cognitive advantages over, over other creatures, um, we have to um, pay attention to what's going on and we have to focus on changes that could be potentially negative because we have to be able to respond right quickly uh, in order to survive. So we have um, evolved a kind of negativity dominance, and that's something that Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning um, psychologist, notes in his fantastic book, Thinking uh, Fast and, and Slow. And that book distills um, years and years of work that he and his uh, longtime partner in research, Amos Tversky, had come up with, um, showing that uh, that negative uh, dominance is, is really important because, again, humans to survive have to focus on the negative. But that's <laughs> something that as a species we never really grow, grew out of, right? So if we default to a kind of basic thinking. So at the very bottom of our cognitive and moral development. So if we go back all the way down to Perry stages stages to the sort of to to the simplest um, cognitive way of being that we have, we always land with this uh, built-in negativity dominant because well it, it got us out of trouble before. So it's almost as if we rely on it to get us out of trouble again. We don't address uh, problems even at the multiplicity stage, where different um, outcomes or different possibilities could be assessed for whether or not they one could be better than the others or whether or not they have uh, alternatives. No, everything tends to default to this kind of status quo loss aversion thinking that's strongly driven by the kind of precautionary principle thinking, where we're thinking only about what we could lose or what could go wrong instead of what could go right. And another way of looking at that is thinking of it as a zero-sum game. So in a zero-sum game, when one side or one person um, wins, the other automatically loses. But if you think it, um, if you think about a lot of the work that uh, people like um, Eric Zimmerman and in the in the resource ship um, economics, and in, in fact even anybody who seriously thinks about development, who seriously think about economic value. Um, economic value, when it's created, doesn't um, preemptively take away value from anything else. Value creation is, is a pure positive. We create value, and in many cases, 
value can be created um, and start existing in a place where there was nothing before. I mean, in the article, I used the example of uh, creating um, the FM spectrum, so just electromagnetic spectrums out there. But we decided at some point to monetize parts of the spectrum and call it the FM radio spectrum, uh, whereas previously it was just random electromagnetic radiation that would have been there and, and we would have to think of, of maybe ways of, of detecting it even to know that it's there. Uh, did, did the creation of the FM spectrum take anything away from anybody? No. It was just a pure positive. It was a net positive. It created something out of nothing. And we forgot. As a, um, as a culture, we tend to forget um, as um, um, commentators, scientists, thinkers, critical thinkers, that um, zero-sum is not the only paradigm, is not the only narrative that is out there. And yet a lot of this pessimist thinking, whether you see it applied to um, COVID or whether you see it applied to um, ecological thinking or even thinking about um, what's going to happen to our energy generation and energy production, seems to see everything in terms of this precautionary principle zero-sum um, thinking. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's, that's, I think, one of the, one of the key issues of, uh, of the age, I think. We have to be able to break out of the zero-sum um, thinking. And until we start seeing that uh, zero-sum thought is actually a narrative, that it's a narrative that comes out of um, a number of scientific disciplines, and we've already mentioned this earlier, definitely some aspects of zero-sum thinking and conservation principles. So for example, uh, conservation of energy uh, that would come straight out of physics. These kinds of ideas, are absolutely relevant, but in certain um, well-studied, circumscribed areas of uh, endeavor where people and human creativity play very little role. These, um, these ideas apply well in population biology, where we're dealing with um, life forms that do not intrinsically create anything. They, they come in, they consume. Um, they reproduce, yes, they create the next generation, but that happens to be a response to their um, evolutionary imperative of, of uh, participating in, um, in reproduction and, and just creating um, the, the, the new generation. They're not building on that. They're not doing what um, so many anthropologists and even Jane Jacobs herself uh, stated about people. They're not trading. They're not creating um, the kind of material culture that survives and builds upon itself uh, generation after generation. So, of course, animals do have a kind of transient culture that they learn from each other, but it's not a cumulative culture that is then transmitted, right? So that's, um, that's hugely important. And I, I love what Jacob said about the, um, the two ways in which people tend to interact with each other to, uh, to make a living and to make their way in the world. And I think what we see with uh, the pessimist reporting really uh, emphasizes uh, the guardian syndrome or the guardian culture uh, that Jacobs wrote about in Systems of Survival. So that's, that's her later book, not the 1961 bestseller, but it, it's her um, more philosophical book that she wrote um, in the 90s. Uh, Jacobs identified two syndromes or two ways in which people interact, the guardian syndrome or the guardian set of behavior and the commercial set of behaviors. The commercial set of behaviors, I would almost describe as, uh, well, it's, it's open to inquiry. It's open. It's dynamic. It's uh, 
almost libertarian in what it embraces. It embraces creativity. It embraces voluntary interactions. It embraces trade. It, it, it embraces people getting along. And um, what she said is beautiful. She said, uh, people defect for the sake of the task. So, so that's beautiful. People can create and recreate who they are momentarily, right? In the moment to accomplish something beautiful that didn't exist before, right? That, that's defecting for the sake of the task. And then they can default back to what they wear. But the point is that they spontaneously become this dynamic thing and then they do something together, right? So that's the commercial syndrome. The Korean syndrome is where I am. Um, you know, obviously not, not psychologically and not um, intellectually and, and spiritually, but where I work. The sphere of um, governmental institutions, right? Education in Canada is largely a government thing. Um, even uh, universities are, are very uh, predominantly uh, public institutions. So um, anything that's, that's top-down designed by the government is a guardian thing. Guardians look at loyalty. They really hate defection. So defecting for the sake of the task is utter and absolute treason. And they love status quo. So when you look at pessimism, and when you look at the um, kind of feedback mechanisms that support pessimism, when you look at the zero-sum game and what it tells you about the attitude of uh, those in charge to human creativity and the ability to create value, you realize that these people are speaking out of the guardian syndrome mode. They are all speaking against creativity against emergence, against dynamic adaptations to emerging conditions. They're speaking out of the precautionary principle zero-sum game because they're terrified. Not only are they terrified of change and possibly letting some level of control go, they're utterly terrified at losing the status of uh, being in charge, being part of the elite and being able to tell people what to fear, what to follow, and what the narrative is. So I ultimately see in our news a conflict between um, not just zero-sum thinking and, let's say, the dynamic spontaneous order thinking that we see in, in Jacobson and Hayek. It's this contrast that's really age-old, uh, described by Jacobs um, in, in, her, in her book between the Guardian and, and the commercial syndromes. And in the news, the guardians are winning more than ever. The guardian syndrome is win winning, especially because it's managed to somehow convince us that the, the technocratic top-down view of the zero-sum game everywhere is the only game in town. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we never really, um, not as individuals, as individuals, we many of us do well, but as... Um, as a society, we never really progressed beyond Perry's dualism, and we are afraid of the other. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like it's easy to fall into the pessimism because it's natural, but it but then it's like reinforced over and over yeah. again to be thinking that mm -hmm. way, and uh, that's the that's the hard thing is when you're trying to fight against something that naturally comes to us, and you're fighting against the people who are pushing for it <laughs> yeah, yeah. State. <laughs> see when when we if when we have a chance maybe to to meet again and to meet with Pierre, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book that we published a couple of years ago and there's a chapter in it 
where we talk a little bit more about the psychology because in a, in a brief piece we can't really go into the psychology but there's so many um, so many other um, of these psychological constructs that both Kahneman and others go into showing us that the negativity dominance and the salience of negative things is just one of them. I mean, we have we have availability heuristics which um, help us to focus on the negative, and the availability heuristic is is um, merely the fact that if something is repeated more uh, frequently than uh, the competitive. Uh, uh, side of things. So if you hear something negative more often, it just accrues more authority in your mind. Yeah. It's simply, it just, it compounds the importance of that, right? It doesn't have to be right. And it very often isn't, but it's simply louder, right? Yeah. That's, that's just it. You just explained propaganda. Or yeah. At least one, one mechanism of propaganda that we know has been dramatically in effect yeah. of late, yes. but, um, I've got a crazy thought that I want to throw out there to you just because I know you'll, you've got, I think, clearly a great background, like looking at the eco pessimism. And I think that has been a huge driver for basically a lot of, um, or at least gets kind of, um, tries to take credit for, I'm looking for the right way to put it. Like we, we're, the, the powers that be are are trying to stir up everybody in a panic for, mm -hmm. you know, one climate panic or another. And, mm -hmm. um, and as I'm sure you've seen, and I think we can get into at some point, either this time or next time, like just how that's progressed. Like, and so people listening kind of basically know what I'm talking about. Like, you know, at one point it was the coming ice age. And at one point oh, yeah. it was a global warming and now it's some um, climate change. And, <laughs> but it's always an impending disaster. And, um, and, or like the population boom, I, just like, yeah. you know, pick a, pick a disaster. It, it has all been proven to not have played out the way they said it would. So, does that sound familiar, everybody? Um, but wow. so I'm wondering, okay, so here I'll get to my crazy thought. And I said this before on, um, you know, Jesse and I were appearing on somebody else's podcast and I kind of threw this thought out there, and, but it's been sitting with me more and more lately, but, um, you know, I don't think they were as satisfied with our response to what they kept um, demanding, like we see as a climate disaster. Mm -hmm. And I think this year was a very convenient way for them to kind of go into a hyper overdrive of, um, you know, returning us to the primitive. Like oh, yeah, yeah, limiting yeah, our growth. freedoms, mm -hmm. limiting our, um, or like restricting our movements, restricting progress, economic progress, economic development, um, you know, and even just like on a, an a interpersonal level, like restricting our ability to be friends with each other, make, mm -hmm. have allies, like, you know, tearing families apart because of a virus that really has a quite impressive survivability rate. Um, <laughs> You know, I think this isn't unrelated to the last scare tactic that they tried to shove down our throat, but I think it wasn't necessarily working as well as they thought. And this, you know, never let a never let a um, crisis go to waste, right? Oh, absolutely. But you know, the anthropogenic um, climate change uh, narrative uh, again—it is is so fascinating because it. Um, 
it showed up, uh, so you're absolutely right that there were glaciation scares back in the 70s. There were actually other scares. And when, when um, uh, we have paired together, he'll tell you a little bit more about scares that go back mm-hmm. to the 20s and 30s. And they have to do with erosion. So ecological scares are actually really, really, really old. And throughout the entire last century, we've gone through a number of them, but that wasn't even the beginning. If you actually go back um, to the book, the 2018 book that Pierre and I wrote, we mm-hmm. document in that book um, scares that go back to antiquity. And the kind of uh, pessimistic thinking and also um, elitist, top-down, zero-sum thinking was always with us. You, you can see that even Plato used to write about um, the fact that people are multiplying like locusts and they're like a cancer on the soil of Attica. And pretty soon only the dry bones of the hills will be left and, you know, the bees buzzing above them. So this this was uh, this was way back in, uh, um, in the times of antiquity uh, that this was happening. And these scares, um, ecological scares, are um, have been kept in balance to some extent by the fact that there were other things to believe in. So what, what I'm what I'm getting at is that to a large extent, uh, eco pessimism has become a substitute religion and yeah. moral code and ethical code for mm-hmm. um, our um, for our elites. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to replace any other value systems that we might have by these values that are uh, prescribed by them and, and that that should in fact uh, be our driving values and any critical thought any spontaneous or otherwise generated value system of ours or um, even traditional value systems that have actually evolved for a variety of reasons and they have uh, proven to be adaptive and, and positive uh, should also be replaced by um, by these alternative value systems. And um, uh, what, what ended up happening um, in the 60s, so this was late 60s, and it really culminated in the 70s and later on, um, it was the fact that uh, not only were societies in the affluent West becoming somewhat more secular and gradually and gradually more secular and then, uh, and then even more so, which left a certain moral and spiritual vacuum uh, to be filled by other things. But also, at that point, our elites, especially our intellectual elites, uh, were starting to look at an, a moral vacuum of their own. And that vacuum was left by the almost total demise of uh, the Soviet Union. So if you look at what was happening, it was becoming really clear that, well, there probably, luckily, isn't going to be a huge nuclear disaster because the Soviet empire was rotting from the inside. Now, uh, there was propaganda trying to tell us, oh, no, the Soviets are as strong as ever. And if you look at it now, there's still a fair bit of disinformation trying to tell us that it's the Russians messing with elections, messing with this, messing with that. The Russians are busy taking care of their own decrepit economy. Plus, they're not. Yes. Are they still meddling in something locally? Yes. But it's not Russia. It's China who is, 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 is in the global ascendant. And of course, we're told not to look at Chairman Xi because, uh, oh, yeah, look at look at the Russian bear over there. But yeah. leaving that alone, back in the 60s, especially <laughs> late 60s and through the 70s, um, the problem was that the Russian bear was on life support, right? He was limping along with, uh, you know, with his suitcase all poorly packed, you know, and, and going, well, I think I'm just going to leave. Um, we didn't quite have the revolution of the people. And um, the elites were freaking out because uh, the, the enemy was leaving the stage. 
who were they going to rattle against and get the people motivated to um, either fight against or be afraid of, right? And of course, what gets people worked up? It's fear. What got people worked up with COVID? It's fear, right? Fear of dying, fear of infecting your loved ones, fear of uh, losing control of your life, right? So in effect, we have lost control of our life because we were afraid that we might, right? So that was working for a while during the Cold War, but at some point, people were no longer really afraid of of Soviet Union. So what ended up happening is a lot of the eco-pessimism filled that void and filled the gap. So the, the word eco-pessimism or the term eco-pessimism wasn't actually used in um, the, the seminal essay that, that precipitated this, but just as Garrett Hardin's very famous essay, The Tragedy of the Commons, was published in um, the great uh, scientific uh, journal Science, uh, this other essay that I talk about briefly in the article was also published in Science. It was by a historian, a historian of, um, actually not even a historian of science, just a UCLA historian, Lynn T. White Jr. And this essay was called The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. And it was pretty well the first attempt, but also kind of a lasting attempt of trying to show that um, uh, the Western um, Enlightenment-derived science and technology-based culture led to um, a slowly developing eco-catastrophe. That was the very first time, 1967, when that idea was put coherently in a major, major scientific magazine. And um, it really gave impetus to people like um, Paul and uh, Ehrlich and his wife, Anne Ehrlich, who, of course, were responsible for publishing just a year later the very famous book, The Population Bomb, which of course asserts um, through its pages over and over again things like by uh, 1970 or by 1980, there are several predictions in it, they're all wrong, but um, throughout <laughs> the book, the Ehrlichs, they're, they're, and they still do it, by the way, uh, they're both still alive. Uh, Paul Ehrlich is um, in his 90s, but he's, he's vigorous and he still publishes uh, in, in the book as well, if, if, you, if you search for them you will find a number of uh, both scientific and semi-popular pieces by either Paul or Paul and Anne, mostly these days, Paul alone, telling us that just because the exact year and the exact way in which he um, prophesied the demise of millions, if not billions of people did not happen exactly the way he predicted, doesn't mean he's wrong. And the funny thing is, everybody still seems to believe him. So this this great technocratic idea that uh, knowledge is received from the experts and only the experts know. And even if the experts are shown to be incorrect and erroneous and reality departs very far from where the experts tell us we should be, they're still fundamentally right. And we're just not being patient. We're being bad kids because if we were just a little bit more patient and sit there, this would all come true. Right? Just wear the mask. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, not just one. You really have to double mask. At yeah. This point, right. Because yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's because the variants. Don't forget it. It's the variants. Yeah. yeah it's the variants, guys. <laughs> yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. It's exactly that. But it's exactly that. And again, I'm not seeing. I'm not saying variants do not exist. But viruses mutate. 
they obviously do even during a regular, let's say, a regular flu season. So again, I'm not saying COVID is the flu, but it is a virus. It's a respiratory virus and they, they mutate. And yet we're told, and once again, the idea of stasis and the idea of, of steady state and equilibrium and conservation comes in. If we only sit still on our pretty little asses, and if we do exactly what the experts tell us, wear the masks, wash our hands, and take the vaccine, Mm-hmm. then the disease will go away. In the meantime, in the meantime, COVID's mutating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, economies, which are extremely interdependent, incredibly complex, um, are doing their own things and mostly declining because we're, we're not doing what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And, and we've, as wholesale societies, we've just, we've bought into this equilibrium conservation stasis mentality uh, driven by the precautionary principle, driven by the idea of the zero sum, and, and essentially this, the whole idea of lockdown too is it, it buys so well into this uh, this um, zero sum thinking. It's mm-hmm. if we don't move and don't breathe and don't do things out in the world, that somehow uh, that will uh, save um, you know save the virus from spreading. Um, and there'll be no other interventions, no other ways in which the virus will spread, because obviously it's it's obviously the virus can only spread in the way in which um, uh, the experts tell us. In the meantime, it's an airborne aerosolized virus, right? It's obviously endemic. It's basically everywhere. It goes wherever it goes. And having a mask for which there is no randomized control trial showing um, its yeah. effectiveness. Uh, is is going to do very very little to prevent a dynamic system from taking over another set of dynamic systems. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and this is exactly the the kind of uh, clash of narratives that that we're seeing. Except that only one narrative is evident everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it also like I'm thinking back to back to the earlier days where um, when basically everybody was locked locked down like it's it's hard to even think back to i mean actually i shouldn't even say that because joanna i know in toronto and canada it's taken you know a turn for the worse and it's gone back to a very severe lockdown yes yeah no my cousin's up there and he's bitching um over snapchat not as as bad as boris town though i think we we were never quite as as badly locked down as boris town but take quebec they have a curfew if I may mm. bitch for a second about the curfew, yeah. why would the virus care that you're home after 8 p.m., right? Yeah. And then, uh, if you so, so let's say that was utterly facetious because what I'm really getting at mm-hmm. is, is the fact that if you restrict people's movement and if you focus and concentrate everybody um, in the same, um, let's say, um, shopping settings because we still have mm-hmm. to buy food, right? Most of us still want to have a tiny bit of agency when we're getting our food and let's yeah. say not all stores deliver. In fact, many stores with the best prices like Costco will not deliver. So if yeah. you do want to go and um, buy your own food and there's a curfew, uh, you'll be concentrated within the same stores yep. um, at the same time, breathing the same recycled air. And that is somehow supposed to be better 
um, then having as many uh, wide opening hours as you possibly can, opening up all the small businesses so that yep. people who Our are options. close to small businesses can go and get their transactions out of the way in, in, in minimally crowded places where there's very little recirculated air. So what makes sense to us, and again, what is a dynamic solution, what's an emergent solution, is rejected by the, by the top-down thinkers um, if we afford uh, the term thinkers to them. And instead, we're stuck with, uh, no, you must stay in the house. You must uh, be concentrated. And at least in Toronto, we don't have a curfew. But in many places, um, you must go out only during certain hours. Oh, and by the way, even though vitamin D is great for you, you cannot go outside unless you absolutely must. Mm. And by staying home, if anybody who ever comes in contact with you is exposed, well, guess what? Uh, transmission um, in community and home settings accounts for about 44% of all transmission. But no, you must stay home. Yeah. So all the data, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So all the data tells you that this is a bad policy. And yet, but then again, if you look at Michigan, what's happening in Michigan um, and what's happening in other states in the U.S., the proof is almost there. But again, nobody wants to wants to admit it. And I've got to throw this last one in because I just looked at, at that news article. It was published on April 12th um, by one of our main news uh, purveyors. It's called CTV News. And it looks at a report um, that uh, shows that for the first time, um, Canadian infection ha uh, statistics have overtaken US infection uh, figures uh, during this third wave. So I believe Canadian numbers as of April 10th, maybe we're looking at, uh, we were looking at 207.7 infections per, um, I believe, million, not 100,000. That would be a bit too high because I think uh, we're, we're a bit lower than that. And US overall infections were around 206 and mainly driven by Michigan. So I'm asking myself, hmm, let's see, what is the commonality between all the Canadian provinces um, uh, versus most of the U.S. states, with a few exceptions like Michigan, the U.S. is open. Mm -hmm. Canada, closing down and down and down and Going down. Going in the opposite direction of progress. Exactly. And our infection stats just went through. But uh, in, in the end, the conclusion of the article was, oh, well, the U.S. is doing well because after initial <laughs> terrible response, now they're really good at vaccinating. And I'm thinking... No, the U.S. is doing well because after a poor initial response, they've become extremely dynamic and there's so many more options in healthcare. Yeah. You can go to an independent doctor who can offer you ivermectin before you're sick. And guess what? You're probably not going to get sick because you have an effective prophylactic in Canada that does not exist. Besides, many of our patients who end up in critical care or in hospitals end up being put on ventilators. Didn't we learn that very often, that's still not doing the best that. way. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. oh, wow. They are doing that. And the stats of how many patients in ICU are in ventilators send chills to me every, every day. I look at that and I think, you're seriously doing that even after reading reports out of New York and out of Italy and so many places that yeah. putting people on ventilators uh, can often accelerate um, uh, the immune response storm as opposed yeah. to... Uh, calm down their lungs. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure our, our health system is killing people. But that's, uh, again, I am not a doctor. I'm simply <laughs> somebody who's critically thinking through the data that, that has been accumulating for the last year. But of course, top down, steady state, zero sum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And a final postscript on the zero-sum thinking to COVID. We have pretty well a socialized um, medical system, and uh, you can see um, how <laughs> horrific its response is, not only in these infection numbers and, um, well, the, the casualties, da daily death numbers, at least um, if, if you look at the stats, you can see that in the third wave, mortality is way down with respect to either first or second wave. But the other thing you can, you can see, uh, the evidence of zero-sum thinking in, is how it took a year of sustained uh, living through pandemic and repeated lockdowns uh, and it took us to get to this stage where, where our positivity is way up and our numbers are way up for the government to finally think, oh, wait, uh, maybe we should uh, build a field hospital and a mini ICU because our ICU capacity is absolutely awful. The, the province, the ICU capacity before um, it was started to be slightly expanded must have been around 600 beds. 600 beds for an entire province, okay? Wow. So, of course, they think that by locking us down, uh, they're going to not overrun that capacity. Well, I'm sorry. For an entire year, what you do, and you, you, you sit on your asses and you tell us not to go outside. You destroy our businesses, our economy, our immune systems, and an entire year of learning for, for vulnerable children. But in that time, you build no extra hospitals, no extra health units, you do not expand our ICUs, you do not expand our healthcare capacity, you barely get a few vaccines, you get zero ivermectin and other prophylactics, and then when things explode, you go, oh, well, it's your fault you're not wearing masks. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is no, that, that, do you think that so right. might be on purpose? I don't think they can plan that far ahead. I think that would be thinking you're diabolical. That's, that's yeah. the benefit. Like I do know there are um it just sounds planned almost though I, I guess it's but I mean maybe like you know so here we are we're firm believers in um spontaneous order like maybe this is the path that kind of it has to go on like we can predict a lot of these outcomes um basically once mm -hmm. the just because we I think we have a better understanding of human nature and um you know, what humans are really doing, like Joanna mentioned earlier, like mm -hmm. if you leave people free to do what's in their own best interest, they will do so. And so, you know, in every way possible, generally, and yes. every way that they're allowed mm -hmm. or encouraged. And so, but like, you know, and, and generally what we all believe in is that if people are kind of uninhibited and allowed to go do that freely and consensually and voluntarily and cooperatively with each other and the environment that it's going to ultimately lead to that spontaneous order and i think we've got you know we've got facts data and historical evidence to prove that but um i guess what i'm getting at is that as soon as you kind of start getting the regulatory bodies um into place we can kind of see maybe not the entire picture of how it's get, but like as we start to see the chinks in the armor Mm -hmm. Um, and basically like, it's not too terribly hard to predict, um, if you're really like open to thinking about it, <laughs> how things will go wrong and, and where they will. But what's so funny, if, and you bring up a really good point, um, Joanna, but, uh, and Jesse will probably remember this, but I think it was Tim Dillon, who's like a crazy, goofy, kooky comedian, but God bless him for being so good on all this, this past year in particular, but, um. But I think he, like, 
to exactly what you just said about the government, and especially like in a socialized healthcare system, like the government is more directly responsible for a hospital response than maybe the U.S. is. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's, it's becoming more and more state controlled and driven, but that's another, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but, but, uh, he made like a joke and a tweet that was basically pointing out the stark difference in what restaurants did to adapt to these regulations and restrictions that they were, that were put on them than the government and, or any hospital system. Like when it came time to either let's add, let's, you know, I know that, um, cause I work directly with like a lot of doctors, particularly at Hopkins and other huge, um, big name facilities. And so I know that they were all ramping up their ICU capabilities and, um, basically turned, turned a lot of, um, like normal IC units into COVID units. And then a lot of like normal, just non-ICU beds into ICU units just to kind of try and, and, and so they were over-prepared in a lot yeah. of instances and, and mm-hmm. thankful, you know, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So like, good, that's a good thing. Again, people were very allergic to good news, but that was a good mm-hmm. thing. The fact that that field boat hospital, like wasn't used good. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a huge waste of um, our tax dollars. Everybody like it contributed to the fear porn that we had to bring in this boat. But like the fact that it wasn't used, we don't, nobody talks about that. Cause again, yeah. it was good news. Yeah. And, um, but so like what I think, um, and a lot of people were like on the ground reporting was that, and what I kind of had my own insight and, and could guess as to what was going on was that like, all of a sudden everybody was complaining at different times throughout the year, like, Oh, I see you beds are crowding again. And it's like, well, it's because they, you know, didn't readapt to what they kind of probably may have needed to with, with a quote unquote surge that everybody's screaming and talking and hollering about, like you guys just did this. So let's maybe do what worked instead of just bitching and complaining about it. <laughs> I say that with um, a lot of uh, love and respect in my heart. Right. Um, but I really think like so much of it was just, the whole year and it fits into the theme generally of um you know this this top down centralized planning and um yeah it really not working well like leave and and you know it's even almost to the experts' credit like they almost discredit themselves by taking these narratives that are handed to them and being mouthpieces instead of actually sitting there thinking and um, mm-hmm. going through the data themselves. Instead, it's all about like who you trust. And so all my experts mm-hmm. happen to trust the CDC and I don't trust the CDC at all. <sighs> but you see, that's not science. That's not science. Yeah, that's that's not. a game narrative. It's, you know, if you, yeah. if you, Go into uh, the history of um, uh, science um, deep well that also Hayek went into. Um, you end up finding this guy named Ludwig Fleck, who was an, a virologist or immunologist in Germany back in the 30s. He was Polish Jewish, and I don't remember exactly how he ended up surviving the war. I know that I I, I think he did. I hope he did anyway. But Fleck mm-hmm. Fleck contributed hugely to thinking about echo chambers, actually, and a lot of his work that was originally written in German um, ended up getting translated in the 70s 
um, and later. So it didn't really hit the mainstream at the same time as um, even um, Thomas Kuhn of Paradigm Shift fame. But it's essentially, um, I think it's it's more it's more evocative, it's, it's brighter, it's better put together than Kuhn's ideas. And what he talks a lot about um, are uh, closed systems of opinion. So these are the echo chambers of today. So closed systems of opinion are exactly places where confirmation bias and we're wanting to belong to the same uh, club um, uh, propagates through through science. And this is something that is hugely a part of the academia. So what you said, Maddie, is, is absolutely right. It, you have experts who do not do their own critical thinking because that might put them outside of the closed system of opinion, right? And um, what what they're doing when when they behave that way over and over again is they they um, validate uh, Fleckian ideas about uh, what happens in the academia. So it's not just Kuhn talking about normal science and paradigm shift. It's that we we um, normal science is. Um, uh, the way it behaves, the way it tries to um, always adhere to status quo is 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 not just uh, the way science happens. It's actually kind of against the way science happens. Science is all about questioning. It's very much about the self-reinforcing kind of precautionary loss aversion behavior that, that we have because we want to be part of the in-group and we all have confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think um, that something you just said now and then that you did say earlier it kind of um and everybody is probably just as sad as me about this but you know here's the example um rage against the machine literally the name of the band speaks for itself however these days they are actively raging for the machine mm-hmm. so these creative people these these artists who are at one point very rebellious and like during a very important time I don't know, like what happened other than, you know, getting co-opted, getting comfortable, falling into the, mm-hmm. the pessimism feedback loop and, and, you know, wanting to maintain that stasis, their status quo, like they're now in the in group, they now have authority, they're now widely accepted because they'll go on stage and tell you to get a, get a vaccine or they'll tell you to vote a certain oh, way, geez. you know, and, and like now these rebellious hippies are old and washed up you know, for some reason are still able to influence a lot of people. Because they're part of the elite. They've become exactly. elite. That's the yes, problem. They are the establishment. They are the elite that they were, they used to rally against, you know, like, I'm, I don't know if they're actually, I, I feel like I don't hear anything out of any of them and maybe that they've completely disbanded, but like, you know, I, I'm, what song goes through my head a lot is like Creedence Clearwater Revival's Fortunate Son. Like, where are they these days? Like, I I feel like they, from what I can tell and have not heard from them, I generally think that's a good thing, you know, Um, that means maybe they've kind of kept to those sorts of opinions and thus they're not still um, very popular, at least in the mainstream, quote unquote mainstream. Yeah. Do you know what really gets me too about about the response of um, all these governments? And it's it's not just the initial U.S. response or the continuing ridiculous Canadian response or Boris Johnson's response in the U.S. <laughs> to to the pandemic, is how easily bad ideas about top down control spread. Because if you think about what the role of a true government, a government by the people for the people, a true republic style government should be, is um, it should be about 
letting people help themselves the best way possible, defending their property, defending, let's say, their ability to express who they are. And yet every single government violated personal liberty, violated these, these, these I would say, sacred covenant principles between a government and the governed by saying that instead of protecting your ability to be who you are, expressing yourself as you are, living your life, making your your mark, making your impact, we've locked you in and essentially given up on what we're supposed to do, which is protect and get out of the way and and minimize the harm that we do. They've maximized the harm. Yeah. And in instead of doing things that would support people like building hospital capacity, getting ramping up the production of simple generic prophylactics, right? Mm-hmm. And then making sure these are distributed, allowing people who don't have to be in crowded environments to work from home as much as possible. Well, that did happen, but that was forced upon yeah, everybody. Forced versus and then, optional. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then getting out of the way with the proper infrastructure, which would be extra hospital infrastructure, extra prophylactic infrastructure, and the information, the distribution of unbiased free information so that everybody could read about this, hear about this, and say, oh, okay, I, I'm an individual. I have agency. I will read, decide, and take my family where I need to go, right? So this is the, it's it's just the complete opposite. And the worst thing, and I think the crowning insult of this of this whole thing, and again, it reminds me so much of where we are in in in, in Paris, Paris cognitive and moral development schema. Everybody, almost everybody, with with the few of us dissenting, agreed with this, and in fact wanted to be tied down more and more people want to be in lockdown they want to uh, tattletale on their on their neighbors they want to become these these little hitler jugend informants it's as if it gives them meaning that that is uh, that has otherwise been leached out of of uh, of life and i'm thinking where have we gone wrong as as a culture that we don't celebrate the meaning in uh, having ideas, taking responsibility, choosing the best thing for you, helping others live to their potential, right? Now the meaning of our existence has become telling on our neighbor who's who's got a party of, of um, you know, 10 people indoors or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we can do it in Ontario for us, it's zero. Five mm-hmm. outdoors, ha, ha, ha. Oh my gosh. Well, actually, now we're actually supposed to have basically zero of anything. So yeah. Anyway, but yeah. Anyway, it's it's just um, every time we get on um, on the COVID um, on the COVID theme, it's as if everything we have studies uh, studied. Pardon me. Everything that Pierre and I had written, everything we had ever looked at, um, not just Hayek, but let's just even take it from Hayek and Jacobs on it. It brings us to today, and it shows us that even even that writing about it, talking about it, it didn't make the dent. It wasn't enough to show to people that um, top-down and centrally-based solutions are always going to be wrong because they 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 always assume that people 
can and have to be changed in order to conform with an idea. And that, I think, is always the biggest fallacy. Yeah. Well, that, I I can feel your heartache in that <laughs> statement, you know, genuinely. And, um, but I, I would just say, don't forget that this matters. Like, you know, here we are talking about Hayek and Jacobs and others that are long since passed, but they're their work and like good work is eternal. So I appreciate you and Pierre and others like continuously fighting this fight and um, doing what little, even those little um, you were mentioning before, uh, before we started recording how you've been managing, I guess this um, COVID newsletter um, for your work. And, you know, (laughs) you slipped the little Easter egg in about the uh, great Barrington declaration (laughs) You know, definitely some, there. <laughs> someone saw that someone needed to see that and saw it when they did, you know, maybe they'll contact you at some point, who knows. But, um, you know, I, Jesse and I started this podcast about two years ago now, right? Yeah. That sounds about right. And I mean, I, it's the fact that people listen to us is amazing. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm, I'm honored. Thank you all. Like, I'm just this crazy girl that rambles and finally have us a place to do it. Right. And um, I'm going to co-host to do it with. And then we get to talk to incredible people like you who, you know, unfortunately for us and actually like Jesse and I are geographically very distant, but like, you know, you're up in Canada and you're locked down. And, um, you know, we unfortunately don't know when the next time we would see you or each other or any of those things. But, um, you know, I think as I kind of alluded to before, we have something else in us. Like I know we clearly just went through how the pessimism is in us by nature. And um, we have these constant mechanisms that are pushing us back towards that. But I think, you know, I'm gonna toot our horns a bit and just say that we happen to be, I think, a little bit stronger than most people. And um, I think that works obviously to our credit or to our fate in our favor a lot of the times but um it also kind of just makes us uh ba- like <laughs> punching bags in some ways like because we have to experience it all and see it all um with such fine gritty detail um i feel a little bad that we you know we're reaching about an hour and a half here and we didn't really get into like all the sci-fi aspects and uh, oh, yeah. of um your article or the in in the sci-fi literature I should say specifically but I think you know the fact that we're living yeah. in science fiction and um particularly like the dystopian-esque novels that you in your article discuss and and um kind of pinpoint like where it turned from like space and exploration and and optimism and expanse to turning inwards and towards destruction and kind of making that a little too popular. Um, I think it's all completely connected and very relevant. And I wish people would go read even some of the basics like Orwell and Bradbury. And, um, you know, I, I unfortunately feel like we're living in the Hunger Games. I think it was like David yeah. Icke who kept calling this the Hunger <laughs> Games, and he is not wrong. 
And then it, it makes me wonder, just like people loved those books and not just awake people like me, like everybody loved those books, those movies. And I, you know, and I guess they just can't plug and play like it, it, it it's a movie only. And it's something that I think we've talked about before too, Jesse, how um, maybe with others that the fact that it gets fictionalized, I'm, I'm doing quotes, yeah. it gets fictionalized kind of separate separates it for some people from reality. And it makes it like, no, that's not real. It's, it's in a book. It's, it's somebody imagined it. It's not real. It can't be real. But meanwhile, like I see us developing into the brave new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's Jordan Peterson, uh, a, a fellow Canadian, you know, the extremely well-known mm-hmm. psychologist who's who's turned to essentially a moral guru for for a generation of of students and, and also others like me who can always welcome a, a really good argument. Who said that fiction is is real? Mm-hmm. Fiction is real uh, because it's it has access to truth that um, we we can't otherwise express very coherently, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But fiction really distills truths. So, of course, I think we were attracted to a lot of that literature um, because it was, well, first of all, it allows us to uh, almost role-play danger and scary um, aspects that we hope never to encounter, but we also feel <laughs> the reality of it, the reality, the visceral reality of that, right? And, and again, Jordan Peterson says, when you think about history, when you think, for example, of the Holocaust, and you think, oh, I would not have been a Nazi, he says, uh-uh, just be careful. Statistically speaking, most of us would have been Nazis. Right, and that's also what fiction brings up to us. Would you be able to stand up to, uh, to uh, let's say, book burning in in Ray Bradbury? Would you be able to to stand up to uh, um, the kind of totalitarian uh, life that uh, Winston experiences in 1984? Would you be able to not take Soma if yeah. you were in Brave New World? Right. And um, I think the answer is almost always. Um, how could you say yes, right? You have to, you have, only if you, or, or rather, only if you, only if you inhabit yourself as a, as an individual who is open to becoming, who's open to emergence, could you possibly say maybe, right? But you have to be really honest with yourself and you have to realize that not only do you have um, the potential for, for the good, but um, you also unfortunately have the potential for for the other. You wild the you are the wild animal you're afraid mm-hmm. of, and Peterson says that very often as well. If you go through the Maps of Meaning podcasts or or the book Maps mm-hmm. of Meaning, that's very much what he talks about. And I think we're seeing the the dark side, the shadow side of us emerge fully because we did not stop this. And sometimes not stopping it, sitting, Bingo. not quite passively, but but sitting and watching. That's dark. Yeah. No, I, you hit the nail on the head right there. I was just thinking that, you know, what's what's the old classical saying of, um, it might be Edmund Burke, but, um, you know, the only thing that really is required for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. Yes. And so, you know, you going through those examples, I, I was thinking to myself, literally, it would be really hard to resist on my own. Like if I was completely yeah. on my own, an yeah. individual, it would be insanely hard to quote unquote fight the system, yeah. you know? So I think, um, but 
you know, and then there's the other level though. Like there's the not doing anything, but I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, and I even hate to the degree that, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing something, but I feel like I could do more, but it also is like very, you know, I have a mortgage also, like we all have jobs. We all are, could be victims to what it, what, what we've seen play out is the cancel culture for having our dissenting opinions. But I mean, that doesn't mean I'm not going to have them. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll have to do with them what I can and feel like I'm able to, um, with also kind of keeping my, my best interests in mind. Which is why we have to stay in contact (laughs) with each other and we need to elevate our voices as much as possible because sometimes just hearing somebody else say it gives you the courage to say it. And then when two words are saying it or two people are saying it, next thing you know, four people are saying it. And it's like that commercial from the 60s of the shampoo. And I can't remember what it was, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I feel like we kind of went through the, uh, the way, a wave of emotions, (laughs) both with, um, you know, having the ability to talk about just the onslaught of pessimism but you know why i think at the end of the day you know i think some of the realest people the most awake people are some of the most optimistic people i see out there like i think of like ron paul mm-hmm. you know that man is still smiling and still doing his ron paul liberty report every day yeah and always has good news and light in his heart and i think you know <laughs> if all we can do is kind of keep our own lights illuminating you know, that's how we do change minds, change hearts, bring others to our side, resist the evil um, that does exist. Um, you know, it doesn't just mean that orange Cheeto man is, um, is he, you know, I think I already called him evil. I don't know. It's, <laughs> he's gone. He's gone. And um, he was never the evil that you guys said he was. So, <laughs> yeah. But I can also tell it's like getting close to 11 o'clock. So I'm, my <laughs> word functions, uh, yeah. I'm just motor. It's all declining at this point. But um, I guess I want to turn it back over to you, Joanna. Is there anything that you feel like um, either you want to direct our listeners to or inform them of or just, you know, wrap this up? I think we'll have to um, wrap quickly, wrap it up. Well, I, I can't wrap otherwise, but <laughs> we can <laughs> wrap it up quickly. I do have um, to just to just to uh, let everybody know um, the uh, the article is in Breakthrough Journal, um, and uh, it it came out in um, March. Um, I do have Twitter. I don't tweet much, uh, mainly because um, I'd like to keep my job for a few mm. more years. Yeah. If I started tweeting seriously, I couldn't stop. It would be uh, the dam would break. Um, <laughs> I'm so I'm I'm there. I also have a website. So if you if you search for my name, you'll find my publications listed on my website. And um, I I can't thank you enough for um, letting me ramble for two hours about things that I so deeply care about and so rarely get to talk to um, brave, smart, coherent, engaged individuals like you who are who are doing an incredibly important job of keeping the rest of us sane. So thank you. Yeah, anytime. I appreciate that so much. Um, so we will definitely link your information in our show notes. Um, 
And Jesse, do you want to tell people where to find us? Or I can for once. <laughs> well, since I always I always push it up to you. Well, uh, you can always find us on Instagram. That's where we're most active. So just look for Voluntary Vixens on Instagram. We're also on Facebook, same name, Twitter at Vixens Voluntary, and. If you want to donate to our podcast, um, you can always donate uh, at our Patreon, which is um, Vixens underscore voluntary. Yeah. That's it. And um, uh, this is an opportunity for listeners to get back in touch with us about maybe, you know, ways we can um, improve our and grow our community and Mm -hmm. improve our connection with you. But I'm definitely thinking that I'd like to start a locals community. if anybody's willing to join, I'd like to, you know, kind of keep the uh, barrier to entry as low as possible just because, you know, we are not made of money. Um, as much as, uh, you know, the left and the <laughs> narrative wants to say that us capitalists and us libertarians, like, we just want to steal people's money and hoard it for ourselves. And, you know, generally, like, you know, it sadly, I, I, because we're not, I think, so evilly corrupt to people. Um, we tend to, you know, be of more modest um, means. Uh, make of that of what you will. You know, like the richest people, the richest, uh, biggest corporations aren't funding people like Ron Paul. They're not like back in the Free State Project in New Hampshire. You know, yeah. they don't care about us whatsoever. So we got to care about each other because, um, you know, I think that's the way we move forward um, no matter what happens next. So just an idea. Let me know if anybody listening is on Locals and would also be interested in joining a community if I made one, but definitely thinking of doing so. All right. Um, so we'll catch you all next time. Joanna, we'll catch you soon. Um, definitely want to have you back on and we'll have Pierre join you as well and um, continue to touch on this subject. Cause I think like, it's so important, like, and it's such a, I, I've said it before, like pervasive narrative that just there's this doom and gloom and like there's no hope and humans are bad for the planet and um i hate i really truly hate the overpopulation one but like all these things like weigh on us and um crush our spirits and we you know we can't do the good that we're here to do if we have crushed spirits so on that note everybody (laughs) until next time keep it sane keep it peaceful and keep it voluntary (laughs) 